let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we begin some new subject matter, huh? This is now Special Topic Thursday, a night that is really tailored to your questions. And so what does that mean? Is tonight going to be just about apologetics? Maybe. In some weeks it may, but in other weeks it might be about an exploration into the sciences. It might be about an exploration into history. It could be me responding to a question about spiritual direction. Whatever it may be, Thursday night is about the whatever it may be, right? I I felt that really over the course of past weeks, months, and really years, the one thing that kept on coming back to me is, am I responding to your questions in such a way that is satisfying your need. I get so many questions about so many different things, and sometimes I just respond to your question by way of email, or even in some cases by way of the phone. Other times, you've heard me, if you are a faithful listener, respond to your question in the stream and context of what I'm talking about. And other times, I might take a few minutes um, before I talk about my principal subject matter to respond to a question. But I thought, you know what, why not just set aside a night from here on out to just answer your questions. If there's something that you want me to talk about and I don't feel like I can respond to it, or if it's out of my league or out of my range, I will gladly bring on a guest and and we'll talk about it. One thing I will do is, whatever your question is, because everything has to do with God, I'm going to bring it back to God, right? Certainly a great point of emphasis of Thursday night, I'm sure, is going to be about apologetics. This evening is going to be me responding to a question now that I continue to receive just because it's on your heart (laughs) and it's regarding Mary and that I'm going to respond to it. But again, in other weeks, it might be something else. So Thursday night is about special topics specific to your questions. So please do not hesitate to email me. Please do not hesitate to contact me. You can Go to my uh, website at joeholcraft.org, J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org, or you can email me at J-H-O-L-L-J-M-J at yahoo.com. I will gladly take those questions and bring them back to you so all of our listeners can, can hear, so all of our listeners can be more formed because of your questions. Now, if it is something personal, I'm not going to take it on air, obviously. I would never do that. But my pitch to you is... Bring to me your questions. Whatever question is burning on your heart, bring it to me and we'll talk about it. Now, if it's a question that pertains to what we do from Monday to Wednesday, well, I'll answer those questions on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But Thursday, again, is about you and meeting you where you're at. I want to meet you where you're at. That is my desire to essentially just not be on the radio talking about what I think you need to hear, but ultimately responding to your questions. And even what we're doing on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday is because of you. You've requested another study on sacred scripture. And in this case, as we are now coming out of our study on the book of Revelation, we are now in 
a new study. We are in a new study in our treatment of First and Second Corinthians. All right, so how about the wedding feast at Cana? And your question, if you're not the person who's asking the question, is something you've probably heard. What is going on when Jesus says, Oh woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, clearly it appears like Jesus is dissing his mama. Okay, I mean, that, that's what it sounds like, right? Huh? Well, I'm going to give the shorthand version to that question, and then I'm also going to give the longhand version. I was telling my wife this morning, Thursday night's going to be about the shorthand version and, and the longhand version, and you can take either one and share it with your friends and family. But before I answer any of it, we have to first read the context, right? So if you have your Bibles, if you want to flip to the Gospel of John, the marriage at Cana, the wedding feast at Cana, can be found in chapter 2, verses, verses 1 to 12. All right, so John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Okay, so let us first treat the title woman. Although it <laughs> might offend the standards of modern etiquette, this in point of fact was a title of respect and endearment in antiquity. I mean, you hear the word woman, and it is offensive today, right? I mean, I cannot imagine calling my wife woman. Hey, woman, get over here. <laughs> you just don't do that, right? And yet this is what Jesus says, woman. But 2,000 years ago, it was a title of endearment and respect. This is why it is so important for us to read sacred scripture, just not in its spiritual sense, but also in its literal sense. And by literal sense, what do I mean? Well, that historical context, appreciating not only who's writing, and in this case, John, of course, but also who are his recipients and how would have his recipients received this message. Be assured, my friends, they would have understood woman, while in many contexts, one of which at least would have been a title of respect and endearment. Okay. Now, what's interesting here is Genesis 3 
is in so many ways the reverse image of the Cana episode. As Eve prompted Adam to defy the Lord and, and drag the human family into sin, so Mary prompts Jesus, the new Adam, to initiate his mission of salvation. In point of fact, the description of Mary even alludes to Genesis 3.15, where Yahweh speaks of a woman, right, whose son will trample the devil underfoot. We will always benefit when we read the New Testament in light of the old and the old in light of the new. This past Monday, in our introduction to our study on the first letter to the Corinthians, I spent some time reflecting into the senses of sacred scripture, and certainly we hammered that point home. But what about this phrase, Joe, of what have you to do with me? Or it can also be translated as what is that to you or to me? Now, this is a Hebrew idiom rendered in Greek, and in many ways its meaning is flexible, and it always, like any and every verse, must be determined by context. In more general terms, it can express either disagreement between parties with divergent perspectives, or, or the free consent of one party to the expressed will of another, with or without a sense of reluctance. The second connotation, my friends, certainly fits this context, since Jesus does what? He promptly complies with Mary's request. And Mary never wavers in her confidence that Jesus will respond favorably to her petition, huh? Now, what's maybe even more curious in this verse is this next line, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> What's going on there? Why in the world would Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? She simply said, hey, son, they have no wine. Why is he suddenly talking about the hour? Well, we have to remember something. John is the author of this very rich theological gospel. John is considered the eagle. Why? Because he soars like a theologian. The gospel of John has more layers than any other gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. Okay, they really speak to the narrative of Jesus. Are they theological? Well, of course they are. But there's something that John does that no other gospel does. He just goes deeper. And that is why the Gospel of John has been studied by so many theologians, because there's so many layers, so many layers. So what is the meaning of this, my hour has not yet come? Well, we have to put this in the larger context of what John is, is trying to communicate here. First and foremost, <laughs> we should say that the assertion hides an important assumption. I mean, the statement seems exaggerated, unless the provision of wine was somehow connected with Jesus's appointed hour. Certainly this points to the historical hour of his passion, but also to a liturgical hour, a Eucharistic hour. Now I want to turn to a topical essay that is in the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, and it is titled The Hour of Jesus. And the Ignatius Study Bible, again, it is a widely popular study Bible. It really gets into each and every verse, breaks open the Greek and, and the Hebrew, and it's, it's authored by Curtis Minch, Scott Hahn, I, I believe even edited by others. 
Now, now listen to what the commentary points out. 17 times the Gospel of John mentions what? But the hour of Jesus. 17 times. In the first half of the book, the hour is a highly anticipated moment in the ministry of Jesus that constantly grabs the, the attention of the reader and drives the narrative forward. In the second half of the book, readers discover that Jesus comes upon his hour only in the final days of his life. So what is the meaning of this hour, and why was it the singular focus of our Lord's passion? As the commentary speaks to it here, a careful analysis of the fourth gospel reveals two dimensions of this mysterious hour, one rooted in the historical life of Christ and another in the liturgical life of the church. So if we are going to understand the wedding feast at Cana, we have to take up these two modes of hour, if you will, the historical hour and the liturgical hour. So what could we say about the historical hour? Well, that the hour of Christ is first and foremost the appointed time of his passion, right? Which in John, as in all of the Gospels, is the climactic phase of his mission, if you will. Before this time, the attempts of our Lord's enemies to arrest him are in vain because his, what do we read in John chapter 7, verse 30, and also in chapter 8, verse 20, his hour has not yet come. The clock begins ticking. However, at the start of what? Passion week. When Jesus declares that the hour of his glorification has at last arrived. Now, although troubled by the painful ordeal, of course, that will seize our Lord in his hour, Jesus embraces the prospect of suffering as the hour when he will pass out of this world to his heavenly Father. And so it is, his disciples too. As John reminds us in chapter 16, verses 21 to 22, will also share in this trial as the hour strikes them with the fear and distress of a woman in labor. So at the historical level, then the hour is the time when Christ passes through the agonies of betrayal and bodily torment, finally mounting the cross out of love for the Father and as a sacrifice for our salvation. So this hour of Christ's humiliation and death is in John's gospel, the hour we could say, of his exaltation that becomes ultimately the source of everlasting life for the world. For God so loved the world, huh? For God so loved the world. Now, what about this language of the liturgical hour? The liturgical hour. If Christ's hour is linked with the historical events of his passion, then it also reaches beyond them, into the liturgy and the liturgical commemoration of these events in the life of the church. Several statements regarding the hour of Jesus are thus connected with what? But Christian worship. Consider the verse I just read in verse 4. In John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus responds to his mother's request for wine with that puzzling statement. My hour has not yet come. The hidden premise, it seems, is that when this still distant hour finally arrives, he expects to provide an abundance of what? Well, what did we read in verse 10? 
but the finest wine. This may be certainly read as an allusion to the liturgy, where believers all over the world gather to worship Christ as he pours himself into the Eucharistic cup under the visible sign of wine. How about John chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus insists that his coming hour has everything to do with worship, and not just with any worship, but with a spiritual adoration of the Father, superior to any previously known in Samaria or even in Israel. What is the narrative in John chapter 4? But the Samaritan woman, right? The worship characteristic of this hour in the great narrative of the Samaritan woman, which, oh, by the way, is the longest narrative in all of the Gospels minus uh, the Passion narrative. John reminds us that the worship characteristic of this hour will not be confined to any particular mountain sanctuary, but will lift true worshipers up to a new heavenly height in the Spirit. How about John chapter 5? verses 25 to 29, where Jesus looks to his hour as a time when those who are dead will hear his voice and live again. This too certainly has connections with the liturgy, where Christ continues to speak through the scriptures and awaken souls deadened by sin. Finally, we can speak to in John chapter 12, where Christ's hour will bring in a harvest of believers from every nation, because Jesus like a grain of wheat that dies and is buried in the earth, enables Israel and every nation to sprout into new life. So this blessing comes not only through Christ's death, but also through his risen and glorified humanity, which of course is the wheat that becomes for us the bread of life in the Eucharist. Amen? Amen. So the Ignatius Catholic Bible study points out that these two dimensions of the hour are part of the one paschal mystery of Christ. So we cannot therefore drive a wedge between, say, the historical hour and the liturgical hour, between the sacrificial gift of Christ to the Father on the cross and the sacramental gift of Christ to us in the liturgy. This, my friends, was clearly recognized in the early life of the church, where the hour of Jesus referred not only to his suffering and death, but as in the ancient liturgies of St. James and, and St. Mark, the expression, this hour, referred to what? But the representation of the Passion and the Eucharistic celebration, a point that has become a common theme in recent weeks, no matter the context, are those words that our Lord says in the upper room when he's instituting the Eucharist. Do this in remembrance of me, the word remembrance is essentially defined as a what? Representation of the one sacrifice of Christ, because that is what the Eucharist is all about. The one sacrifice of Christ being made present upon the altar, where in the Eucharist he now abides body, blood, soul, and divinity. I mean, how rich is this? John wants us to roll up our sleeves and appreciate what he's trying to do for us. <laughs> I mean, there's something going on here that I'm afraid often gets lost with John. He is very strategic in how he goes about writing his gospel. 
And he wants us to see the, the topical themes and the interconnections and all of the golden threads that we might be better formed in what Christ came to establish in the new covenant and, of course, in the Eucharist. So what does he do? He puts the marriage feast at Cana front and center, his first public miracle. Fascinating. Now, as I'm thinking about this, what more could be said to this great marriage at Cana? Well, go back to the first verse, because it is very much tied to what we are talking about now. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. Now, what's going on there on the third day? Well, chronologically, this refers to the third day since Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel, right? Theologically, it has two levels of significance. The first being that the third day is actually the seventh day of our Lord's opening week of ministry, huh? The evangelist John hints at this when he delineates the succession of days. Go to John chapter 1, verse 29. What do you read? On the next day. John chapter 1, verse 35. What do you read? On the next day. How about John chapter 1, verse 43? The next day. And then in John chapter 2, verse 1, we read, on the third day. So if you follow the succession, the third day from the fourth day is actually the seventh day. John wants us to see the connection with Genesis. He's already done it in his opening verse. Go to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. He's already evoked Genesis. And in the first few chapters of John, you read about light, you read about darkness, and you certainly read about days. And as I'm pointing out now, even specifically, seven days. In the story of creation, what's the first expression of man but woman? In the story of the new creation, what's the first expression of man but woman? Woman. You see the connection? Certainly John wants us to see this. He wants us to see that creation that was fashioned in seven days is being transformed and renewed through Jesus. Now, a second theological point here is that Jesus manifests his glory on the third day at Cana, just as he reveals his glory by rising on the third day after his death. How about that verse, the good wine? Verse, what is it, 10? And said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The good wine is a biblical symbol of many associations. First, if you're to go back into Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, and even Amos chapter 9, verse 13, you see that the good wine is a biblical symbol for the Messianic age. We also read in Song chapter 1, verse 2, that the good wine signifies the joys of what? But marital love. Thirdly, we can say that the transformation of water into wine anticipates, well, what we've already spoken to, the change of wine into blood when Jesus gives himself to the world in the Eucharistic liturgy. And then in the light of that, of course, the symbolic impact is about the wine of the marital celebration and how it looks beyond this life to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. You know, the word sign in verse 11 
can also mean miracle. And there's something going on here too. What takes place on the altar at every Mass? But a miracle, right? I mean, there is a miracle every single day. I made the point before, every second of every day, right? Because if there are 346,000 priests in the world and they are saying Mass every day as they ought, that means that four hosts, four hosts, my friends, are being consecrated every second of every day. That's amazing to me to really just think about. So there's thousands of miracles on the altar every single day, and we can begin to grasp the miracle as we contemplate the sign that ultimately transforms into something greater, into something heavenly. So the miracle on the altar, while it possesses a sign, also calls us forth, calls us forth to contemplate the deeper mystery. You know when you look upon something beautiful and it just stops you in your path and you find yourself contemplating that which is beautiful? We are made to do the same thing during Mass. Contemplate the mystery that is taking place on the altar. And we should do so mindful of divine revelation, mindful of the marriage feast at Cana, mindful that in this exchange that takes place between Jesus and Mary, you have an exchange that is saturated with mystery. And so when we ask the question, hey, Joe, what's this about when Jesus says, oh, woman, what have you to do with me? Be mindful that when you have a question about such a verse, there is a longhand version answer so theologically rich and filled with so much depth that it will leave you reading these verses like you've never read them before. That's what's so exciting about sacred scripture. And I dare say, what is so exciting about your questions? You know, every time I get a question like this, I say to myself, well, I know the answer to that. Here it is. But what God is challenging me with is to go back and back and back and to reconsider, recontemplate what might be there, to continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So it's always exciting for me to, to get a question, even, even if I've been asked the question a hundred times before, because that's a sign to me that God wants me to contemplate this very thing more. And at the same time, that you too contemplate the very verses that you are not satisfied with just the soundbite version. I know having soundbite answers is always good, but go deeper. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.